0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Toronto-based jazz vibraphonist Dan McCarthy on the 2022 CD Songs of the Doomed, Some Jaded Atavistic Freakout. This new album of music is inspired by the writing of political journalist and general dingbad Hunter S. Thompson. A lot of the jangled madness that makes up the band's repertoire comes from a new compositional style created specifically for this band called the Gonzo Cipher. The ultimate sound of the band was inspired by the Gary Burton Quintet from the 1970s on ECM Records, which was weird in its own right. We get into all of this COVID life and the future ahead. Enjoy this interview. It's
1: great to, to, to catch up with you from my end of things it's so relieving to see that you know the, the reason for talking to musicians now isn't to say how are you doing without there being any music is how does it feel to have a new album and to be returning to the live stage so prior to getting to that gleeful question i want to know how you survived COVID. how how did you get through that time period and how did it change you or something ah oh,
2: great question <laughs>
1: I mean, it it changed a lot of things.
2: Uh, I don't think anybody would be able to say differently. Um, I think that it was a really, it was a really pivotal time for me personally. Um, you know, my, my wife and I had been living in New York in spring of 2019. We decided to move back to, to Toronto. Um, well, she's from Colorado, so she wasn't moving back, but she was moving here. And, uh, yeah, we wanted to be closer to family, and I decided to go back to school and do my master's uh, at York University here in Toronto. And so, you know, I was sort of in this, uh, I don't want to say midlife crisis, but I was in this point in my life where I just sold my business in New York. I was trying to figure out what, you know, we just had a kid. I was trying to figure out what my long-term plan was. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go back to school, get a master's, and kind of see what happens from there. And then halfway through that, obviously, we all know what happened. The pandemic hit. Um... And I had no idea what I was going to do. I was halfway through this program, like with the idea of, you know, doing music full time, be it teaching, performing, whatever. And all of a sudden, nobody knew when or if even things would ever get back to normal. So I started just doing a lot of stuff on my own. Um, The pandemic is actually what kind of sparked part of the compositional tools for this album. I wrote a lot of music during that time. uh, And I mean a lot, I mean, probably 40 to 50 pieces of music varying from jazz head to six movement piano sonatas. Um, And so it was a very interesting time of experimenting and trying to do stuff, you know, virtually by sending, you know, (laughs) wave files back and forth and recording over top of them and trying to make music that way. Um, And so, yeah, it was just a very interesting very interesting time to be a musician and you know i it, it definitely kind of changed the course of of my career that's for sure
1: so let's get to the better question how relieving is it to have songs of the doomed out chances for live music and just the world opening up in general
2: it can't be understated like this is such a a relief for musicians around the world um for me personally having this album has been a dream of mine for many years uh it's it's been sort of percolating and, uh, changing form for, for a lot, uh, really probably the better part of 10 years, I suppose. Um, and so really getting a chance to to do this and get it out and have it turn out as well as it did. I'm beyond proud of how, how this record came out. Uh, the guys just play amazing. Um, I, I really am happy with the sort of the way the compositions came out. Um, so I'm just, I'm so thrilled that this is out there. I'm so thrilled that we're able to do some live shows, uh, you know, bring this to people because I think it's kind of different than a lot of stuff out there. And
1: uh, I'm just excited to see how it is received. You know, the interesting thing about doing something where you cover Hunter S. Thompson, I always heard when Bill Murray... Did uh, you know? Get his interpretation. It like permanently changed him. I remember Johnny Depp talked about that. Like once he got into the head of Hunter, like there was indelibly pieces that seeped into them that they couldn't shake. So I'm. My question to you is: as you got into you know paying respects and kind of honoring this uh, you know Gonzo journalist, what kind of effect did it have on you? How did it How did it translate the music? That's a great question. I have not had anybody ask me that about um, this project yet, but to be honest, that's
2: probably my favorite question that have ever been asked about this project. Um, and you're totally right. I remember, I, I mean, hearing stories of, you know, Bill Murray returning to the SNL, um, you know, stage, and, and they were doing rehearsals and, and shows, and he would, just, he would just, that that sort of Hunter persona had had entered him, and I don't think it ever really leaves you. Like, he would walk around just sort of in that, sort of hunter state of mind and obviously the same thing with with johnny depp and even watching you know if you watch pirates of the caribbean i mean it's it there's so much hunter thompson in captain jack sparrow it's really quite fascinating um and of course hunter and and johnny were friends and up until hunter's death uh for me I, yeah i mean obviously i didn't have quite the same level of interaction that they did in terms of getting to spend you know months living at his house uh that would have been wonderful and i probably would not have survived it um but it it, de- it definitely um impacted me like I, I you know i certainly was probably drinking more than i you know should have been during that stage and just really trying to get into it because i think that like when i first started trying to write the music for it um what i would do was i would dive into his writing for an hour two hours three hours um You know, while sort of like sipping some whiskey and beer the whole time, and then I would go right to the computer and just try to try to create music like on the spot without thinking too much, just using that sort of spirit using that energy um, as he would probably call it to channel into the into the music itself so um yeah it, i I think that there's always going to be a part of hunter that's that's with me at this point because of this experience um
1: and you know i I, I think it's a good thing. So, you know, the one thing, too, is it seems as though because of that chaotic time period that we went through with COVID, I always thought it was kind of the meeting of the Twilight Zone at David Lynch. They came together and shook hands, and here we are. Times Square is empty, and the world's in a very strange place, and we're doing it together. So was the introspection into somebody like Hunter S. Thompson just emblematic of how crazy Things were, and maybe trying to artistically calm things down, or, or or how how did that play into it? Interesting question. I think that
2: I definitely think that there are parallels there. Um, you know, the one thing, the one thing with Hunter is that everything for him, everything for him was a crisis. <laughs> um, he would he would turn the most mundane of situations into you know a situation where he would sort of struggle through it, um, and that was just part of what made him him it's honestly part of what made his writing so interesting because he could take very simple sort of situations that he was in for an article and turn them into these sort of wild and almost unbelievable um stories because he would just react so intensely to 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 little things that would happen and you know i'm sure that the drugs and and booze didn't (laughs) help that um but i think that that definitely sort of the, the constant crisis um probably mirrored in a lot of ways, just sort of the the constant crisis of COVID and sort of the just, you know, low level stress that just always existed for, you know, that sort of two, two and a half years that that COVID was really rampant. I mean, it's not gone, but it's, you know, obviously we're in a little better place now than we have been. And so I think that, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of mirror, mirroring happening between the way that Hunter approached his life and the way that life kind of was for everybody, um for that for that time span
1: so and there's an interesting intersection here too of not only the writings and inspiration of somebody like hunter s thompson but you bring that into being inspired by gary burton's quintet from the 70s on ecm which was in itself just ecm that time period and gary was a very unique different sound for jazz so kind of explain how that was the inspiration and how that rammed up next to hunter
2: I guess to, to start off, the, my introduction to that era of Gary's music um, was when I'd first gotten into playing vibraphone. I was probably finishing high school, maybe starting college, um, and my dad loved. He used to go to flea markets all the time. He used to go to the like used section and he'd look for um, whatever albums for himself. And you know, he knew that I was getting into uh Fibrophone and so he saw this album by this guy named Gary Burton. Um I think I had maybe one other Gary Burton album. I think it was something a lot more recent. It was just a lot more straight ahead. Um and so I was like, oh cool, it's Gary Burton. This guy sounds good. Um and so I put the I put the record of the record was called Ring. Um Ring features Gary along with uh Pat McTeam McGoodrick on guitars, so two guitars, um Steve Swallow on bass as well as Eva Weber on bass and um Bob Moses. Thank you. Um, And it comes on and it's just the weirdest, least straight ahead music you've ever heard. Um, You know, the first track is this 5-4 piece called Meblevia, which very much inspired Hell's Angels uh, on my record. But it's just this like weird combination of instruments. I mean, two basses and two guitars in and of itself is just a strange, (laughs) strange instrumentation. And I hated it. Like it was it was the worst album I'd ever heard. And I turned it off. And I felt really bad because my dad had bought it for me, but I just, I put it away and, you know, back in the CD tower that we all had in the you know late nineties. And uh, I didn't listen to it again for probably a year or two. And I put it back on after probably a couple of years of college. And I was just mesmerized. Like, I was like, this is one of the coolest albums I think I've ever heard. Um, you know, like uh, I think Carla Blair wrote one of the pieces, like they do Silent Spring on it. Um, Eberhard contributes Colors of Chloe. And Mike Gibbs writes most of the other music, which is just such an interesting, like using that instrumentation for the amount of color and texture that they do. Um, but as well as just the, there's a lot of interesting, um, like very almost upbeat, positive melodies that are sort of superimposed on darker timbres that the rest of the band is creating. It's a really interesting album. And since that time, to this day, it's still my, if I had to pick a favorite album to listen to for the rest of my life, it would be this album. Um, and so then I sort of, like, I one day drew the parallel that, like, this record came out, like, in the early 70s, which is when Hunter was doing his best writing. Um, you know, Fair Loathing was uh, 1971. Uh, then he wrote Campaign Trail, which was based on the 72 election with McGovern and Nixon. Um, this album was recorded, I think, in 1974. Um, and so th- I realized that there was probably a lot of, like, the world was a weird place <laughs> at that time, Um I was like, oh, cool. These things are actually, you know, probably in some indirect way, a reflection of what, like, both of these artists, Hunter and Gary, are reflecting kind of what's happening in the world to them. Um, And I was like, wow, what a cool idea it would be to pull, you know, inspiration from Hunter's writing from that time with Gary's playing from that time with, you know, but merging that into kind of a little more of a modern day jazz album. Uh, And that's sort of what initially spawned this project was sort of that realization that both of these two things that I was so obsessed with Hunter's writing and Gary's record ring, I could actually pull those together and and do my own thing. So that's, that's how those things kind of arrived at the same
1: place. So what are you hoping a listener gets from this album? I don't know. I,
2: when I, my, my primary goal with this album,
1: um,
2: and when I when I gave the music to William McKean, who wrote the liner notes, uh William has written a couple books on Hunter, uh, including one of the only uh books on Hunter that Hunter actually liked. Um when I gave the the music to William McKean, I was like, hey, here's the here's the music. I don't know if you're gonna like it or not. It's a little weird. Um but to be honest, my only goal with this music is I want to create music that Hunter would have appreciated if he got to listen to it. Um I want it to reflect his writing in an interesting way. Obviously I want myself to come through this as well, but if I care about anything, it's that Hunter would have appreciated this album. And William McKean wrote back to me after he listened to it. And he's like, I think you've accomplished that. I absolutely think that you've done that. Um, And that's all I care about. Like would I love people to listen to the record. Absolutely. Would I like them to really appreciate it? Would I like, you know, people to maybe check out Hunter's writing after listening to it, or would I like Hunter Thompson fans to maybe get a little more into jazz after listening to it? That would be wonderful. Um, But honestly, like this was such a like a passion project for me in terms of bringing, like really the things that I loved most into reality. Um, So just knowing that you know that people close to Hunter think that he would have appreciated this, I, I already consider this record a huge success.
1: So the album art looks very much so like something that epitomizes Hunter, and probably he would dig it. So, what's the story behind that? Yeah, I mean that was really
2: that was really the main goal um, was just to to have something created that that would reflect, you know, in, in a way, you know, we I wanted to kind of pull similar colors to, you know, there's there's one version of Fairly of the book that was released that's like sort of orange, yellowy, um, and so you know I wanted to kind of pull those colors because I really liked the way that those those paperbacks look um there's also like an orangey reddish tinge to the uh the cover of gary burton's ring um at least the apple not the rest of the cover art um but uh yeah that was kind of the plan so we so that was was designed up and then what i did is i kind of put a lot of little um i guess little easter egg images in all throughout that that craziness so there's actually like the cover of gary burton's album ring is sort of an apple like and then super fun pose another apple and so i have like two apples sort of situated the same way on the album cover i have like hunter's aviator glasses um cigar like all kinds of little things that represent parts of the inspiration to this are kind of easter egg throughout that album cover um and so if people kind of take their time to really look through it they might might notice some things
1: so dan where can people pick up the album whether they want to buy it stream it anything related to your life and live shows promoting it where can they go what can they do
2: yeah, um, I mean, if people want to buy the album, which is always appreciated, um, Bandcamp is the way to go. Um, just search for Dan McCarthy Bandcamp or Songs of the Dune Bandcamp, um, and that'll come up. Um, as always, that's the best way to support. Um, you know, I think the album is is ten bucks there. Um, you know, it would take multiple hundreds of thousands of streams on any other service to even come close to one album sale. So that's always my first suggestion a recommendation or, you know, <laughs> plea. Um, if you like it, buy it. Um, otherwise, you know, check it out either, you know, it's on all the stream platforms. Uh, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on, you know, all, all that good stuff. So if you're not sure about it, take a listen to it on that first. And if you are enjoying it, uh, head over to Bandcamp and, and buy the album and, you know, just support uh, support live music.
1: This is great, Dan. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you opening up. And, and I'm looking forward to delving more into the album. It's been a joy. So, it's great to catch up with you. Good luck with everything, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I hope you, uh, hope you dig it. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me
0: on. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview. We give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Toronto, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Dan for his time, music, and energy. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.BlockSpot.com. Until next time.